Hey guys, before we jump into this week's episode, I am really excited to announce that I will be back at the London Podcast Festival this year on Saturday the 14th of September and I'm even more excited to announce that I will be joined by the blogger, podcaster, social activist, fashionista, the internet's big sister and all-round badass, Grace Victory. So me and Grace, we met at the start of the year and we got on like a house on fire. And ever since then, we've been saying to each other, we need to get you on the podcast. We need to get you on the podcast. So I'm really chuffed to have her join me for the live show this year. If you want to get a ticket for yourself, all you have to do is head to any search engine and type in London Podcast Festival Dreamers Disease or hit the link in the description of this very podcast. I'll make sure I'll put it in there for you. The tickets are less than £10, which is an absolute bargain for an hour of uplifting and inspiring real talk. And there's even going to be some Q&A with me and Grace at the end of the show too. So make sure you do get your ticket. Get in there fast because last year's show sold out very quickly. So make sure you get yours. Don't sit on it. And to do so, like I said, just head to the London Podcast Festival website right now or hit the link in the description to get your ticket. And I will look forward to seeing you there. This podcast is produced by Unedited. Hello Dreamers and welcome to the Dreamers Disease podcast with me Alex Manzi. I am a positive mindset coach and a social media freelancer and on this podcast whether it's a discussion about everyday struggles or hearing the story of an inspirational guest we aim to inspire you to make a positive change in your life so that you can start becoming the best version of you and on this episode I'm joined by Sam Qureshi who is a writer an Instagrammer and unorthodox psychologist as he calls himself who previously worked as a psychiatric resident at an addiction hospital. And what I love about Sam is his thirst for understanding psychology and knowledge and the different elements to it. And basically when he left his job in the hospital, he went on a journey of interviewing some of the most fascinating people he could find and really understanding what makes him tick and what motivates him and what gets them going so he could apply these things to his own lives, but then also pass information on to other people through his Instagram and through the content he creates. During this conversation, we spoke about dealing with rejection, the relationship between fears and the things you want, what we can learn from emotional pain, and how focus can help you overcome anything. So before we jump in, I just want to thank you for listening. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you can keep up to date with all the latest episodes. And if you're loving what you hear during this episode, take a screenshot of you listening to the episode, post it to your Instagram story, and tag me at IamAlexManzi. So I can connect with you right there and right then. But right now, let's jump straight in and hear from Sam. Hi, Sam. <laughs> Hi, Alex. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Good. Great. So to begin with, can you let people know a bit about who you are and what you do? Well, I'm a Instagrammer and an unorthodox psychologist and a writer. Uh, previously, I was a psychiatric resident in an addiction hospital and... Um, I worked there for about seven years, and throughout that time, I've seen over ten thousand patients. For multiple reasons, I decided to walk. I decided to walk away, and one of the main reasons is I wanted to find a better way to help people. And I believe in education over medication, mm -hmm. and so I went on this journey to kind of solve the jigsaw puzzle of the mind. So I started interviewing people that live outside the frame of psychology. Mm. That's why I like to call it unorthodox psychology. People that are masters of the mind in a unique way, like the top cold reader in the world who can convince anyone he's psychic, even though he isn't, <laughs> or the horse whisperer. 
who uh, can communicate with horses through eye contact and body language, or the top pickpocket in the UK, who's a master of space and attention management, who stole my phone out of my pocket probably three times in the first five minutes of the interview, but that's a different story. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. So um, I met Wim Hof, the Iceman. I I met a lot of different people, and I learned so much from them. And it's, it's all about finding another jigsaw puzzle piece in that puzzle called the mind, because I'm trying to tackle it in a very different way than anyone has ever done before. Because mm. I think if you approach something in a way that has never been done before, you may find something that no one has ever found before. Nice. And what is it about the mind in particular that makes you so interested to want to discover more? Well, the mind basically was a passion of mine ever since I was in medical school. And the reason why I got into psychiatry is because it's the closest thing to psychology. And I was passionate about it. I guess I started that interest during third year medical school. In medical school, my third year, I was fascinated with the idea of what makes us tick. What makes us do what we do, say what we say, what makes us react and respond in the way that we do, react and respond? What makes us hold on to people that treat us horribly? What makes us move on? What makes a change last and what makes a change temporary? And so it was very fascinating. So I started that journey during that time. Then I graduated, uh, practiced in the addiction hospital, and it was a very interesting experience because addiction is one of the most powerful behaviors that people want to break but have a hard time doing and so there were there were a lot of different experiences there that were very beneficial and then I moved on yeah it's interesting because like I was very similar in school I didn't go Mm -hmm. to medical school but when I was in sick form and um you know doing my GCSEs for example I decided to take on psychology and sociology as A levels because I was always kind of interested in well, I didn't realize at the time, but the mind and human behavior and, you know, those kind of topics. And what I got from the learnings at school or what we were being taught at school wasn't quite what I expected. It was more kind of theory-based and like remembering dates and specific papers that had been written and when and by who. And it wasn't really feeding the knowledge that I was seeking. Um, So I didn't do very well in either of them. But then years later, so fast forward now to, you know, five, six years ago, my interest started to come back and then I started to read more, you know, engage in listening to more podcasts, watching stuff on YouTube and spiking that interest again. And obviously my journey has started in this kind of space since then. Um, but what I find really interesting is that when you were working as a, in the psychiatric ward in the hospital, addiction hospital, you said you worked with 10,000 patients? Not at the same time. No, but, but yeah, well, I'd hope not. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but over time, over the, over the seven years, yeah. I got a chance to basically interact with over 10,000 yeah. patients. And was there any kind of like trends in what, or like similarities in the kind of, I don't know if mindset is the right word, but they're kind of like, mental states and mindsets that you'd kind of noticed or was it like everyone was very individual in what they you know were coming and speaking about or their kind of space 
Well, obviously everyone's different, but the similarities, the thing that I found was about 90% of the patients came from broken homes, which mm. I thought was interesting. So uh, their parents are either separate, separated or divorced or just constantly fighting. So what that told me is this was always an escape. It was a way out of the pain because I guess when you see your parents and obviously not, I'm not saying that every child that comes from broken home is going to become that, but that's what I noticed. And I guess what that emphasizes is the importance of the family, the unity, because when that breaks, there is something within the child that may break and to seek comfort in a distraction like drugs is not the best way to heal that crack. Mm. So um, that's one thing that I noticed. It's always about pain. It was never about curiosity, which is interesting because I think if they did have curiosity, it did come from a need to avoid the pain they have or to distract themselves from that pain or to release that pain. Yeah. And personally, the way I look at it is we have the number one cause of emotional pain in life are humans. The number one cause of stress is basically a human. Um, and with smartphones, people can argue that smartphones are the number one cause of stress. Well, first of all, it was made by human <laughs> and it just basically facilitates an easier way for humans. The number one cause of stress to access you yeah. through everything. And, um, but yeah, the other thing is pain. The way I, looked at it as emotional pain comes from one of two things, either neglect or abuse. There's not another thing that can actually lead to pain. You've either been neglected or abused. And the abuse can be verbal, nonverbal, physical, or sexual. But it's one of those two. So if you feel any kind of emotional pain related to anybody, the question is, have they neglected you or have they abused you in one of the four? That's, that's what I would ask if I had that encounter with anybody. If I felt that pain, that's the first question I would ask to identify first mm -hmm. what it was. Because once you start defining the emotions as in kind of make it as tangible as possible. And this is something I found with the interviews with everybody. Um, the more tangible you make the, the problem, the emotional pain, the more tangible the situation is, the easier it is for you to solve it. But one of the things that make the mind so vague is it's intangible. Yeah. If you wanted to tame the mind, how can you tame something you cannot see or hear or touch? How can you tame it? Well, you turn it to something tangible. And one of the ways, there are many ways, but one of the ways is to label it in a such a way that you can actually interact with it. Mm -hmm. So one way is to ask questions that enable you to kind of define it in a certain way not for it to be a permanent definition, but a temporary definition that is temporary enough. It's permanent enough for you to deal with it. Yeah. You got to turn it into the solid form to deal with it. So the first thing is neglect or abuse. That's the first question. Yeah. So it, it, I mean, there's so much I want to unpackage there to be honest, but <laughs> is, is that, that trying to turn things into something tangible? Is that almost a limitation of our brains that we have to see things as something tangible in order to understand it rather than having a bit more curiosity about what's behind the tangible element that we've now created from the original source of pain or whatever it may be. Well, 
curiosity is what drives me personally, and I think curiosity is what helps us evolve. It, it, it's what helps us overcome fear, and I think curiosity is one of the antidotes to fear. Mm-hmm. Getting curious about something you fear allows you to conquer the fear. It, it's the stepping stone. It can be in itself therapeutic, because suddenly curiosity enables you to look at it as something fascinating rather than something terrifying. But when it comes to tangible I think the limitation that um, that is created is not necessarily by our minds, or it's not a limitation of the mind. By labeling it, I'm creating a limitation of that thing. Yeah, I'm limiting its power over me, because the fact that I cannot grab it or touch it is what gives it power over me, and it's what makes it hard for me to interact with it, to alter it, to release it, to modify it. It's hard to contain something that is so abstract or something that is so subjective. And that's the thing about intangibility. So once something becomes more tangible, it becomes easier to interact with. And that's the thing. A lot of people get caught up. The curiosity that you talked about, as much as I'm a fan of curiosity, the worst thing you can ask in terms of emotional pain is why. Mm. Because when you ask why, you're curious as to why did this happen you know, why does this always happen to me? These are negative questions that basically trigger negative and a different kind of shift in your, in the way you focus. And you start focusing on all the reasons why this happened to you or why this always happens to you, even though it doesn't always happen to you. So it's, when you ask a question like that, you create, I always look at why, and I always ask why to understand things, by the way. And I asked a lot of whys in terms of emotions because I wanted to kind of break it down once and for all. But the thing is, when you ask why, why is like a quicksand. Mm. When, you say, when you ask why, it's a downward spiral, it's a rabbit hole that you can't get out of. That's why it's one of the greatest questions to ask to manipulate other people if that's what you wanted to do. Like you wanted to put, to throw someone down a rabbit hole, that's what you do. Yeah. You ask them why. And you show curiosity and the person can't really answer because a lot of people just are based, their information is based on what they're saying, what they read or what they saw. But when you start asking them, tell me more, why? Suddenly they will hit a brick wall because that's the only thing they regurgitated. Mm. It's not based on knowledge. And we live in a world where you have a lot of people that are pretending to be experts when a lot of people are amateurs, assuming that Google makes them experts. (laughs) But I digress. Um, In terms of the curiosity, so the why is like quicksand how or what is like a flying carpet Mm -hmm. suddenly kind of like the fear versus the want you focus on what you want now you're giving yourself direction when you focus on what you fear you're paralyzing yourself automatically so yeah then doesn't using that example of the fear and the want do they not almost exist in the same space because Without the fear, you wouldn't have the want. And without the want, wanting of something, you wouldn't have the fear of not having it. So both of those things kind of are the same, but just at opposite ends of the spectrum. And would it be the same for why and how? Without being able to ask why, you'll never be able to have the flip side of like, how am I learning from this? Versus why am I always feeling this? Or why is this always happening to me? Versus you know, how is this benefiting me? Mm-hmm. You know, they kind of, to me, they kind of exist in a, in a space where they're two sides to a coin. 
And it's like those two sides will always exist together, no matter how hard you try to, to get rid of one or ignore the other side of the coin. As long as the other side exists, it will always exist with it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, the way I look at it is I would I would replace the word want with the word need. Mm. I think fear and need are two sides of the same coin. Okay. With every need comes the fear of losing it. There's always a, there's always a fear of loss. If I need something, it's uh, need is a sign of desperation. Want is a sign of desire. Mm. So if we want to look at those two. But if we're looking at need and fear, the fear creates a need to avoid the fear. Yeah. The need creates a fear automatically to not have the need so the need whenever you have a need you have the fear of losing that need automatically mm-hmm. um, whenever there's fear or need there's force you're kind of forced by the fear to go after what you need you're forced by the fear to avoid something there's force whenever there's force there is no longer choice if it's a want it's not based on fear it's not based on need and therefore it's not based on force it's only based on choice yeah um an example of that i remember when i was with the horse whisperer he was telling me that whenever whenever the horse panics whenever any horse panics they never get the horse they take they never take the horse out of the pen or the area in general um until the horse overcomes the fear desensitizes so they keep the horse until the horse feels comfortable and then they take the horse out because yeah. if you walk away with the fear, you keep the fear, you take the fear with you mm-hmm. and it becomes harder to get rid of it and you contaminate that area. So whenever you come back, it feeds the fear that you took with you in the first place. So with, so that's an example of, to me, the way I look at that is force versus choice. So the fear, if the horse, the horse feels fear in the area, in that pen, it would need to leave. It wants to leave. It needs to leave or it fears staying. So, so it tries to move out as fast as possible. The fear is driving it. It's forcing it to. Yeah. So it has no choice. And so it submits to the fear if it actually succeeds in leaving. But if you keep the horse until it, it's comfortable, it has dominated the fear, dominated the area. So when it walks out, it kind of walks out out of choice rather than force, which means it can easily choose to go back. Yeah. It's no longer a slave to the fear. Another example of that is uh, when I was with Wim Hof, we did the ice bath. That's, that's another story. <laughs> but when we did the ice bath, one of the things that I remember Wim Hof saying is when you step into the ice bath um, and you feel there's, there's, there can be a bit of anxiety expectation you're you know you're worried about how it's going to be there can be you know pain from the cold and the pain is heightened from the anxiety of what you're about to do yeah because uh, you don't know what to expect especially if you do it for the first time now when you step in you have the fear you have the pain you have but if you stay with it and what he suggests is don't leave if you still feel the fear and the pain mm. Because, and that ties it in as well with the horse whisperer, if you leave because it was too cold, because it was too painful, you take the fear with you. And now the ice has dominated you and you are a slave to the ice. And if you want to go back, you can't because you fear going back. Mm. You have no choice. 
you left by force, so you no longer have choice. Because you were driven to leave the ice bath out of fear and out of need. But if you stayed long enough for the pain and the fear and the cold sensation to go away, and then you waited for a few more seconds and then you decided to walk out, now you dominated the ice bath. It was never about need or, or fear or force. It was a choice. Yeah. So you walked out out of choice, not out of force, which means you can easily go back whenever you want to. Yeah. So you, it's, yeah. it's kind of a, a factor of, like you said, becoming comfortable with the fear or, you know, whatever the the thing is and almost accepting, accepting that it is fear and becoming comfortable with that in terms of then being able to return to the similar situation. Is that kind of what you mean? Well, if you stay long enough, what's happening is the mind is constantly processing what's happening. Mm. So the systematic desensitization of different phobias, for example, um, let's say somebody's afraid of snakes. Mm -hmm. Increasing the frequency of exposure, the idea is exposure. Sometimes the exposure can actually increase the phobia because you haven't done it the right way. How come, how come, because if systematic desensitization works, that means that whenever you're exposed to what you fear, the more you do that, the less you fear it. Yeah. If that's the case, then my question would be, then how come whenever we relive a trauma in our minds, mm. we, don't de we don't systematically desensitize ourselves to that? Yeah. We actually make it worse. So what's going on? And one of the things that I found is you need to expose yourself to the fear long enough to break free from it. Yeah. What most people do is they expose it, they expose themselves to it, but not long enough. And then when they leave, they walk away out of force, not out of choice because they didn't wait for that moment. Yeah. But the more you have that moment, the more you neutralize it. So when it comes to, for example, what I was mentioning about emotions, People focus on emotions and they focus on the pain of it instead of allowing themselves to feel the emotional impact of that trauma. They're caught up with the trauma itself yeah. and you relive the story of the trauma and the trauma doesn't matter anymore because it happened, but we keep reliving it in our heads to pause that for a second. Cause that's a much bigger topic, yeah. but to uh, touch upon the idea of desensitization when you if I'm in front of, if I fear snakes and I'm in front of a snake and I'm being exposed systematically, the longer I remain with the snake, without the snake harming me, the, the more evidence my mind is gathering that it was wrong yeah. to consider it dangerous. The idea is to allow enough time for the mind to stop believing in a way, if we consider the mind as an entity, we, we, we need to allow enough time for the mind to gather enough evidence to shift that belief from, from snakes being dangerous yeah. to snakes being safe. Because the reason for that was to protect you. Mm -hmm. And one of the laws of the mind is the mind always generalizes. And it's very useful in learning and it's very useful for phobias. So if you get bitten by a dog, the mind generalizes that all dogs are dangerous if you develop a phobia yeah. and it's to simplify protecting you 
because imagine the mind having to kind of evaluate every single time. It's just a lot easier to streamline this mm-hmm. and just consider that all dogs are dangerous. Yeah. Because you got bitten, it hurt, and pain automatically makes us believe we're closer to death. So guess what? Dogs are dangerous. But it does serve a different purpose, and it does benefit us in life in general, other than phobias, obviously. There are different benefits of generalization of the mind. One of them is the first time you learn to open a door, it generalized that learning. And fear, by the way, is a learning. And one of the best questions that I've heard therapists ask is when someone says, I have a fear of spiders, when did you learn to fear spiders. Yeah. When did you learn that? Or who taught you? That's a pattern interrupt in itself because someone taught you to fear spiders. It's either, it's not necessarily that a spider jumped on you and bit you. It's most likely you've seen someone else freak out, mm-hmm. even though the spider didn't do anything. It could, it could either be on TV, it could be in front of you, it could be your older sister. Um, but you've seen it happen to someone else in front of you. And so you learned to react that way. To the fear yeah so imagine having to learn how to walk in and out of rooms every single time you you were confronted by a door you might have to relearn that it would be so inconvenient <laughs> but the mind generalizes yeah. to simplify and it simplifies your protection through fear yeah and it just makes it a lot easier so, so then is the exposure to the cause of the fear or the perceived cause of the fear always or the only way to overcome it? Not necessarily the only way to overcome it because you can also use, use visualizations done in the right way. Mm-hmm. Because when you visualize something, what you're actually doing is you are reliving that moment. So, and again, that works with phobias, that works with trauma. If you had a trauma at nine years old and for the next 20 years, you visualize that trauma a hundred times, you had 101 traumas. Mm. Because every time you see it, and that's another law of the mind, the mind can't tell the difference between something you vividly imagine and something you actually experience. It can't tell the difference. So when you see something happening in your mind, your body reacts to it as if it's actually happening in real time. So reliving the trauma is actually having another trauma. And there's also the upside of that, not the upside of the trauma, but the upside of the visualization, the benefits. If you visualize, if you have a goal, and they always say visualize what you want to create, yeah. and the more detailed it is, the better, and there's a reason for that, which is exactly the same reason I mentioned. But Normally, they don't talk about that in self-development. When you visualize achieving a goal, and you see it clearly, the mind assumes that you've actually done it. Yeah. So... When you actually do it physically, it's the second time. Yeah. It's not the first time. So you're automatically creating the success. So for, if you, when you want to actually attempt it physically, the mind says, hey, you've done it before. So obvi- and you didn't get hurt. You didn't die. Mm. So there's no need to fear anything because you did it successfully without any consequences. Yeah. The thing about fear, because you touched upon that. So let me just clarify something. It's usually not what we fear. It's not the fear. It's the consequence. So when somebody says, I fear spiders, it's not that the spiders are the trigger, they're the fear. 
it's the consequence of being bitten by a spider. And that ties into what the pickpocket was telling me about when I was interviewing him. He talked about fear. And I love asking this question whenever I interview any of these experts. What are your thoughts on fear? And he said, I believe that fear lives in the future. Yeah. And I asked him, what do you mean by that? He said, well, think about it. You know, if, you, if you're in your home and you hear gunshots outside your home, you're not afraid of the gunshots. You're afraid of the gunmen coming into your home. Mm-hmm. And if they're already in your home, you're no longer afraid of them being in your home. You're afraid of them shooting you. And if they're shooting you, you're no longer afraid of them shooting you. You're afraid of the shots. Yeah. So my understanding of what he said, and this is my analysis of it, because after he left, I was constantly thinking about it, is basically fear is a never-ending mirage that you keep chasing that never comes to fruition. And... The other insight that I thought of was if fear lives in the future and the future doesn't exist, then fear lives in a dimension that doesn't exist. Mm. And that just blew my mind. Yeah. Yeah. I need a second to process that one, I think. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that, that kind of feels similar to me to a lot of situations in life where instead of seeing it for what it is, we apply more thinking to the situation. So we layer on top of what the situation is with additional thinking. So we will, I'm trying to think of an example now. Again, let's use the the, the, burglar, the, the gunman one. So yes. they said, you're not worried about the gunshots. You're thinking, oh, but what might happen after this is that they might come into my house. And once they've come into my house, they might try to find me. Once they try to find me, they might try to shoot at me. Once they're shooting at me, I'm going to get hurt by the shots. You're constantly adding the extra layers of thinking on top. And those layers of thinking just cause like an ongoing cycle. Uh, the, the metaphor I always use is like, you throw your thoughts into like a hypothetical, you know, washing machine and you just let them spin round and round and round and just until the machine busts and then you kind of, you know, you're in a space mm-hmm. where you're like, Ugh. but instead of seeing the situation for what it is, like you said, seeing, oh, the gunshots are outside, that's cool. That doesn't affect me for now. Or the gunmen are in the house. And seeing it for that, you're always, we're always layering thoughts on top of thoughts. And the thinking on top of the thinking takes us away from the actual present moment and the situation and instead creates a different dimension that we're not actually experiencing. But our mind believes that we are experiencing because we've told it or we're telling ourselves that that is the case. We're redirecting our mind to find evidence to support what we see yeah. and what we ask. Because that's another law of the mind. The mind can never ignore a question. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> so the, the real question is what question are you asking the mind? Yeah. If a metaphor I'd like to use would be if the mind is a dog, was a dog, you would, whatever question, the question is the stick. So if you say, why does this always happen to me? What's wrong with me? And then you throw the stick there. The dog's going to go and find all the reasons, even though the dog may disagree, but the dog will find all the reasons to support why this always happens to you and why there is something wrong with you, even though mm. that is not true. Because the way you created the question presupposes that it is true. Mm-hmm. But if you ask a different set of questions and you throw the stick somewhere else, your mind's going to go and try to find something different. How can this help me? Mm. What can I learn from this? What's great about this? How is this useful? What's funny about this? 
There's so many different questions, and most of them are hows and whats. But it changes everything. And then we can go back to the want and the fear, because you can ask, if you stop yourself by asking, what am I focusing on right, at, right now? Am I focusing on what I want, or am I focusing on what I fear? Because if you're focusing on what you fear, you're going to get more of that. If you focus on what you want, you're going to get more of that. When you focus on what you fear, you distract yourself from what you want and vice versa. At any given time, you're going to be focused most likely on one of those two. Yep. So the question is, which one do you want to focus on? You want to focus on what you fear or do you want to focus on what you want? And it's very easy for us to fall into that trap because people would say, I don't want to focus on what I fear. Mm. But that's what we do all the time. I remember in driving school when you, they said when you, and Tony Robbins also talked about this, when the car goes out of control, goes into a spin, don't focus on where you don't want to go and what you don't want to hit. Focus on where you want to go. Because your hands are on the steering wheel and whatever you're looking at, your, steer, your hands are going to steer the car towards it because the unconscious mind is in control in that moment. Yeah. So if you focus on, oh, I don't want to hit the wall, I don't want to hit the wall. You're kind of focusing on what you fear. Mm. All the mind will hear is wall. Yeah. Because another law is the mind doesn't understand negation. So automatically you're just focusing on what you don't want to hit. So if you focus on what you fear or you focus on what you want, the mind will take you there because it always assumes you're focusing on what you want, even when you focus on what you fear. Yeah. And that's the danger. But then doesn't that bring us back to the point, I suppose, of the want and the fear mm -hmm. or the, the need and the fear is where we went um, existing in the kind of same space. Whereas if you do focus on one, ultimately you are bringing the other into play. So where is the kind of middle ground in that and experiencing more of the presence rather than the potential one or the future or the past or the present or whatever it may be and just experiencing that moment that we're living now that ties into what you said about thinking and how thinking develops creates fear because thinking i had this conversation with a photographer thinking versus feeling mm -hmm. um the best photos that he takes are when people are feeling not thinking because automatically the best photos are when somebody's in the present moment, connected to it. And if you are, again, I'm, go back to Wim Hof. Have you checked out Yes Theory or? Uh, no, I have not. Yeah. Ironically, no, I haven't. I think there are three guys, if I'm not mistaken. It's a very popular and successful YouTube channel where they basically embrace the uncomfortable. Yeah and say yes to anything okay. as a way to overcome fear in general, to be happy and successful in life. So the first documentary that they've done, which was a couple months ago, was with Wim Hof, the Iceman. Mm. And one of the guys was in the ice, and he was basically telling Wim, I'm shivering, I'm shivering. And he was shivering, he was shaking. And Wim yelled at him and he said, you're thinking. Mm. And that resonated very deeply with me because the reason why he was shivering was he was not connecting 
with what was happening. He wasn't connected with the moment. He wasn't connected with the cold water. He wasn't connected with, you know, with what was happening. He was thinking. Whenever you're thinking, you're not present because whenever you're thinking, you're living in one of two dimensions where emotional pain lives. Yeah. And that makes you more sensitive to pain anyway. The past and future are the two dimensions where pain exists. If you're in the present moment, you're not going to feel pain at all in yeah. that moment. Some people would argue, no, if you're if something's happening in this moment and it hurts, you're going to feel it. Yes, but it will pass if you are focusing on it. Yeah. If you're focusing on the present moment, whatever's happening will pass. And if you wait a few seconds, it's already in the past. If you're still thinking about it, you're thinking. You're not in the present moment. Yeah. And that's the thing. So thinking versus feeling is very interesting feeling is more alpha waves Mm -hmm. beta is thinking thinking is more beta um it's very very interesting because when you i don't remember who told me this but when you're in your head you're dead in boxing (laughs) if you're thinking yeah it's over yeah the game it's the match is over before it even starts because you're not present yeah the only way to be present is to feel if you're an actor on stage the only way to be present is to forget about the lines and focus on serving the audience. Forget about yourself, connect to the moment. Mm. Sever the thought from the moment and focus on the moment. Because the thought distracts you from the moment and distracts you from learning, distracts you from enjoying, it distracts you from connecting, from doing the task in the best way possible. And usually people that are thinking are impatient. Usually people that are thinking are very they're constantly rushing they constantly speed up they're multitasking and multitasking doesn't actually work yeah it's just very fast single tasking um it it just creates a sense of overwhelm that stimulate it gives birth to fear unnecessarily because you create a sense of urgency that isn't real and when you keep rushing the problem with speed is speed compromises precision so we end up making more mistakes so we end up spending more time doing the task we were doing in the first place Mm. and all you had to do was slow down and slowing down is one of the best ways to be present by the way slowing down whatever you're doing suddenly everything else disappears but what you're doing Mm. nothing else exists nothing else matters the other thing is where your eyes are looking so if we're talking right now if you're talking to me and i'm listening to you with my i'm just you know paying attention i'm looking at you versus looking at my phone while you're talking what am I suggesting to you, but what am I also suggesting to my unconscious mind? You're not interested in what I'm saying. Why? Because you're not paying your attention to... So this almost ties into, um, I think it's Dr. Joe Dispenza that says, whatever your attention is, your energy is. So I guess it, it ties into that, is that if your attention is on your phone, your energy is towards your phone and not, with the conversation and you disconnect every connection is a disconnection yeah every connection to something is a disconnection to something else so if i'm connecting something because i can't multitask no one can i'm disconnecting from you Mm -hmm. automatically and what's interesting is the suggestion that i'm giving my mind is you're not important Mm. your mind believes that whatever you focus on is important so when you focus on what you fear The danger as well is you're telling your mind that the fear is important. Yeah. If you're focusing on what you don't want, you're watching a TV show and you know you got to get to work. Your whole body and your your eye contact is there. You're not going to get it done. I remember um, 
in Japan, I was training with a samurai, and there's so many different lessons that I learned, but one of them is linked to that. You, he was basically teaching me how to push him without him being able to stop me. And I thought that shouldn't be hard or something. Maybe it actually is. I'm not really sure. But I tried to push him and he was blocking it. He was standing in my path. He was just... The thing is, I was the one, think of the metaphor there, I was the one getting in the way of mm. succeeding in what I was doing. Why? Because when I was standing, my left foot was in front my left knee was, I was, you know, was slightly bent. The left foot was aiming in that direction, to the right. Yeah. And my whole body was aiming straight. So what ended up happening is the knee was bending without me noticing to the right. So I was in conflict physically, mm -hmm. fighting myself going in two different directions at the same time. And he said, the foot, the knee follows the foot. Move your foot, rotate it to where you want to go. And you'll be unstoppable. Yeah. And that's what I did. That touches upon the idea of focus. It touches upon the idea of alignment. You need to be aligned. And if most of your body is, is away from what's important to you, the laptop is on your right. You may even look at it. But that's another layer. It's not just looking at it. You're looking at the laptop, but your entire body is facing the opposite, the other direction or another direction you're more likely not to even turn. Mm. If you can't even completely be aligned in the direction that you want to go physically, it's hard to actually do it. Yeah. And we call that laziness. When you're just, it's just distraction. Well, there are other definitions, obviously, of laziness, but that's another example. Yeah. So I want to come back to the samurai thing because this is of massive interest to me because... You know, as you know, and people who have listened to, to the podcast previously will know that I went to Japan earlier this year for a month and loved it, loved the culture, the whole. It's awesome. There's so much. I mean, the history, <laughs> the culture, the yeah. people, you know, the yeah. list is kind of the food. It's endless, right? The beauty, it's, it's endless. Um, but one of the things that has massively interested me since then is the kind of teachings of the samurai. And I don't necessarily mean the combat. I mean their beliefs and their teachings that go into the way that they teach about combat and i started reading well on and off reading a little book that i found in a charity shop called hagakure which is i think hagakure is like an ancient textbook from the samurai and this takes like some of the extracts from it and not modernizes them but almost like takes the most modern extracts from it and puts them into like little passages within this book so there's lots of like really cool interesting stuff so from your perspective having how long did you spend with with the samurai oh the samurai was um japan was 19 days yeah the samurai was about two days cool and two, what was two whole days what was the biggest thing you learned whilst training with them there's a lot yeah there um i learned well, I did sword fighting. I did on the second day, um, about 1 p.m., he told me, I don't know how it came about, but he was telling me that he is also grandmaster in Aikijutsu, or Aikido okay. and Jiu-Jitsu came out of that martial arts. And I said, okay, we need to stop doing sword fighting. We need to get into this yeah. because we don't have that much time, and I'd love to learn more about that. And he started teaching me, and then I asked him about how he manages pain. 
And so he grabbed my arm, he grabbed my hand and twisted my wrist. And he said, does that hurt? I said, yeah, it does. And he said, why? And I was like, because you're twisting it. He said, where are you focusing? What are you focusing on? And I paused for a moment. It took me by surprise. I was like, I'm focusing on the wrist. Mm -hmm. And he said, you're focusing on the source of pain. And you're neglecting your entire body that is free. Can you move? And I said, no. He said, how can you not move when your entire body is free? The only part of you that is trapped is your wrist. And he said, close your eyes. And I want you to imagine that pain traveling up your arm, moving all the way to the left hip. And I was like, okay. I closed my eyes and imagined it traveling to my left side. And it didn't, I didn't feel the pain in the hip, but I no longer felt the pain in my wrist yeah. because I stopped focusing on it. Not only was I able to move him, Alex, I was able to not, I was able to push him, stand up and push him around. Yeah. And all I did was I stopped focusing on the wrist and on the pain and on the twisting that was happening. And I focused on everything else. My takeaway from that is if you focus on the limitation, you're paralyzed. If you focus on the resources, the limitation takes care of itself. Mm. It's interesting because just thinking now, so I go to physio regularly to just have various things done to my body to sort out ancient injuries that I've got. And just the other day, he was like, he had his elbow in my, the top of my shoulder and it was like the most painful trigger point. Like at the time, it just felt like the most painful thing anyone could do to me in life. And I actually naturally, I can't remember where I picked this up from, but I started to think actually, can I feel, you know, my, my bum on the chair instead of focusing on that pain on my shoulder. And the more I tried to focus on, on my bum on the chair, the more the pain in the shoulders, well, the perceived pain in the shoulder subsided. And I kind of started to do that again. I was later, I was face down on his, Thing and he had his elbow in my back of my leg and more pain so I started to focus on the pressure of my face and cheek against the little cushion and again the pain then subsided from where I thought it was to me focusing elsewhere um, which I've, I've, I found quite interesting I can't remember I think I originally first started doing that when he was doing something to me one time and it was just so painful I was like I can't, I can't handle this but I know I needed to go through the pain to relieve the tension or whatever it was but that aside can i elaborate on that there are two things that came to mind related to that number one when you focused on your cheek yeah and the sensations what you were doing to the unconscious mind was telling it what's important now yeah this is important my cheek is important and automatically everything else became irrelevant including the pain the second thing is if you focus on some other part of your body and that relieves the pain in another part of your body. How do you think that kind of mentality would affect your fear? When you focus on something else, the pain subsides. What if you focus on something else like what you want? Mm-hmm. How do you think that affects the fear? Yeah, how it subside? Same, yeah, same effect. Yeah, but then why is it then with pain? Why yes. is it always the pain that we find it the easiest to focus on? And I don't necessarily mean that in just the physical sense of pain i mean in the sense of neglect from someone or 
uh, emotional pain or, you know, the various kind of things that fall under the umbrella of pain? Why is it that we find it easier to focus on those things rather than actually, if you're being neglected or you think you're being neglected by someone, focusing on the positive of that or the, the reasons that they show love to you or whatever it may be? I guess there are a lot of reasons, but I would mention two. One is you're conditioned by the way you grew up to perceive neglect as abuse and to be to amplify the effect of abuse as well. Mm-hmm. So the way we you know, if you say something that bother if you say something that should be offensive, me getting offended or not depends on my conditioning. I either learned to decondition the previous negative conditioning that made me sensitive, or I didn't. I was actually conditioned properly growing up positively, which meant I didn't have to decondition myself. I wouldn't be affected anyway. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have been negatively conditioned because it's hard to positively condition when we don't have a reference for that. We may to a degree, but I don't think people are basically following certain teachings if, if we're talking about religion or, but there's there's a difference one thing would be the conditioning right um the other thing is survival because let's let's go down that rabbit hole for a minute yeah if somebody rejects you neglects you what are they doing they're rejecting you yeah if they're rejecting you what does that mean let's go for the, the future let's go for the consequence let's okay if they're rejecting you what are they doing they're rendering you worthless in the tribe yes 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 yes. so now your value is less you feel it they are insinuating it and now your place in the tribe is threatened and now you fear being kicked out of the tribe because a person in the tribe rejected you yeah and if you fear being rejected what's the consequence of actually being rejected from the tribe you live alone and if you live alone you die alone. Mm-hmm. You don't have the support. You're more vulnerable to threats and danger out in the wild. So you're closer to death. Yeah. So let's trim the fat. When someone neglects you, you feel closer to death. It's no surprise that you'd react that way. Yeah. When you condition yourself or decondition the negative conditioning and recondition yourself in a positive way to look at things differently their opinion won't matter anymore. Now, there's another aspect as well. The conditioning, just to be more clear about the negative conditioning, an example of that is trauma. When someone is traumatized, the brain kind of, the nervous system kind of rewires and becomes more sensitive to anything. So people that are more sensitive to rejection have been traumatized. If somebody is not sensitive to rejection, that either means that they've never been traumatized or they have been traumatized, but they've released the emotional impact of the traumas they've had. Hmm. Cause if you are, this is very important actually. If you, if I ask you to recall a memory of some painful past moment mm-hmm. and you connect to it and you feel the emotion, you're still connected to the emotional impact. There's, it's still stored. I don't know if you've experienced talking about something that was once painful, 
But now when you talk about it, there is no connection to it. Yeah, you you feel, can talk about it, but it doesn't... You can it, always is, laugh about it. Yeah. Or not even laugh, just talk about it yeah. normally like it was nothing. But there is no pain, there's no emotional pain, and let's be more specific, there's no sense of guilt, there's no fear, there's no anxiety, there's nothing, there's no anger, there's no resentment. And you had that before, but you don't anymore. Mm. This is the way we need to be when it comes to emotional pain in our lives. Yeah. We need to reach a point where we can release the emotional pain, the emotional impact of the event so that whenever we think about it, it doesn't bother us anymore. And that is doable. But the problem is they don't properly tackle it. And sometimes therapy takes years yeah. because it doesn't really tackle the emotional release in the right way. Um, because there is a way to release the emotional impact because that's really what we need to get. Just like the consequence of the fear. If you no longer care about the consequence of the fear, you no longer have the fear. Yeah. If you attack the consequence and realize that you're still alive, then the fear automatically disappears. Yeah. And in this sense, same thing. Yeah. And it, 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 interesting that you, you kind of touched on the emotional connection to things. Because one yes. of the things that I pulled out from your a lot of your amazing content on Instagram, which it's very kind of you, thank you. You know, it's kind of a lot of the work that you do is kind of channeled into creating highly emotive, I guess, content through Instagram. One of the things I really pulled out was a quote. I wrote it down because I didn't want to forget it or butcher it. Um, in which you said, "Emotion is a dancing leaf that passes." Can you explain a little bit about what you meant by that? Well, okay, so emotional pain or emotions in general but mainly emotional pain was never meant to remain it is a messenger a signal it is a temporary visitor but we treat it as a permanent resident mm. in our bodies and we tend to hold on to it and the reason why we hold on to it is because if i hold on to resent if i hold a resentment towards someone if i feel resentment towards someone it's because of something the person did it could be abuse or neglect now, holding on to the resentment won't hurt them or won't hurt them as much as it would hurt me. But the reason why I'm holding on to the resentment is that if I, how should I put it? Because you got resentment and guilt. Resentment is a way to protect myself from whatever happened to me from ever happening again. Yep. Guilt is a way to protect others from me doing that mistake again. So when I hold on to a guilt or hold on to resentment, I'm holding on as a reminder to make sure that whatever happened doesn't happen again. The problem is I end up suffering because the poison happens when I hold on to this. It was never meant for it to remain. It was meant to pass. Mm -hmm. And we kind of grab the leaf of emotion when it passes and we hold on to it and we press it in the ground and we start forcing it to create roots and then it becomes harder to release. Emotion can be considered like air mm -hmm. and if we allow it to pass it will pass if we hold on to it it becomes liquid it condenses and then it freezes it hardens and the problem is a lot of people especially men do not cry and that's one of the worst things you could ever do so they hold on to their emotions they suppress their emotions and it turns from gas to liquid to solid 
and it takes a long time from the, for them to melt the emotions because mm-hmm. they need to melt now and it takes time. But once you do, those men that didn't cry for a very long time will cry probably in an unstoppable way. And I'm sure you've seen clips of that. Suddenly there's this outpouring yeah. of years yeah. because the solid block of ice that they've been holding on to inside of them has melted and now you have a waterfall (laughs) and it's not necessarily a never-ending waterfall it just takes a lot of time to release everything you've been holding on to for for decades yeah so what i mean by that is it was meant emotions were never meant to remain it was just meant to pass it was never meant to remain inside you or inside anybody it was meant to be released it just passes and if you're present truly present an emotion that you feel will pass Mm. because the moment it passes if you're it's like you're standing in the middle of a river Mm -hmm. and there's a leaf it's gonna pass you and it's no longer gonna hurt because it will pass as long as you're not tethered to it with a harpoon (laughs) yeah and i think a lot of people have a lot of leaves yeah connected to their back that hold them back and have, and have turned into solid as you said yeah and it, so then how can we begin to learn or even start that process mm. of allowing the emotions to pass as simply as you described as if a leaf was coming down the river and just moves on beyond us the first thing i would say is be present in the moment the second I would say, and as in being present totally, just being present. Mm. How can we do that? One way is to slow down. The other is to slow down your breathing, and that's one of the easiest things you can do. Slow down your breathing. Because here's the thing. You can recondition your physiology. Um, the body reacts to what you see. And the emotion is not just felt. It's triggered by something you see yeah. in that moment. So you can interrupt that. If you're seeing something that reminds you of something that hurts, you're going to feel something and your body's going to react. The first thing that will happen is your breathing will change. So the easiest thing you can do is to slow down your breathing in the presence of the emotion that triggers hyperventilation. Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening is when you slow down your breathing, you start to... Now, if one thing I would say before doing that, actually, is express the emotion. Yeah. And there are three healthy ways of doing it. One is to write, and that's where journaling comes in. The other is to say it out loud. And then the third is to talk to somebody. And if it's the person that did it, that's probably the most powerful thing. But if you do it with anyone, if you do it with anyone, it's um, someone you trust would be better. But telling someone else releases it. Now, there's, there's, there are certain ways of actually making that. It's not as simplistic as that. But that's kind of like the backbone. But one thing that I think would be important to mention here is, and this is one of the problems in therapy, they talk, the person, the patient talks about what happened and explore why it happened instead of expressing how they felt because of what happened. When they express how they feel, focus on the feeling. Because I know that therapists would be like, how did that make you feel? They target that. But when therapy works, it's because they targeted the right emotion 
when therapy works, it's because they targeted the emotion enough times to release it. It's a hit and miss, and that's why sometimes it takes years, sometimes it doesn't. But the truth is, the emotions need to be explored. Mm-hmm. How you feel, because here's the thing, if you tell me something, and I ask you, how did you feel? And notice what I just asked you. How did you feel? How do you feel when you think of that? How did you feel when it happened? I didn't ask you, how does that make you feel? And this is a problem that I have with that terminology. Mm-hmm. Because when I'm asking you, how does that make you feel? I am taking away your control. And I'm, I'm telling you that something else has more power over you that makes you feel. And nothing makes you feel. Mm-hmm. You're, you're feeling what's happening. Yeah. Nothing is making. It's a trigger, but you're predisposed to feeling that anyway. And I guarantee you that's not the first time you felt it. So that's not the actual cause of the feeling because you have other triggers for the same feeling. Yeah. But I need to release that feeling. So what I would do is I would ask, how do you feel? Or how do you feel when you think of that? And by saying it once, once may not be enough. And the way you say how you feel makes a big difference as well. I'm telling you, it's, it's a, there's, there's a more of the, for the process. Yeah. But the other thing is exploring the other emotions attached to it. So if you say, I feel afraid it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the only emotion. So I would ask you what else? And you'd be like, hey, nobody asked me that before. Mm -hmm. This is the only emotion that I feel. Think about it. And suddenly you're like, well, I actually also feel resentful. Huh. I kind of feel guilty as well about that. So because there's so many different factors to that emotion, suddenly, ah, we're unraveling all the different emotions linked to that emotion. Yeah. That was the umbrella emotion. It may be the most important one but maybe the most important one is hidden underneath. And that's why that's how therapy may take years because that's not targeted. The emotional impact is not targeted as much as what happened, why it happened, and kind of creating a reasoning behind it. Obviously, that depends on the type of therapy, but in general, this is the most effective way to release emotions. And there are there's more, a lot more to that. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. But once you release your emotions that you have, and if you're talking about something, it's very easy. If you're mentioning a story, or if you're just talking about anything, I may notice a change in your voice. And that's a trapped emotion in your vocal cords. Mm. And that trapped emotion in your vocal cords was because you were saying a word, you were triggered by a word you said that reminded you of an emotion, a moment in the past. Or... You just randomly remembered something when you were talking about that topic. And in that moment, something popped into your head that distracted you. So we can be triggered by the topic. We can be triggered by a certain word. And that's an emotion that needs to be released. And it can be. Yeah. I think that's powerful. Is like, we were talking about this before we started recording about that, the, the importance of that release of negative energy or negative emotion in terms of then being able to open yourself up to more of the positive emotion or, you know, the moving forward and towards what you want or what you feel you need. You need to be able to release the yes. bad stuff first and almost like flush it out. But you can't do that if you're holding onto it. Funny thing. I was, um, probably when you see this video, I've been using my left hand to, to keep my right hand on my thigh. Yeah. Because I'm avoiding the fear of hitting the mic. So, <laughs> I had so, noticed. So I'm basically just holding it to what I want is just to freely do this. Yeah. 
but I just want to make sure that I don't, you know, affect it. So I was yeah. holding it. So I was <laughs> focusing on what I fear versus what I want. So that's funny. That ties in nicely then. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But like, I mean, I'd love to be able to do this for another couple of hours because we quite easily could, but we're running short on time. So um, I've just got a couple of final questions for you. Um, one of them we've kind of already answered, so I'll kind of skip past that. Um, so the first one is Dreamers Disease is the name of the podcast. Yes. So what would be your definition of what the dreamer's disease means? I think the greatest disease that dreamers have is the limitation they create. And usually that is fear. It's at the heart of all negative emotions. And it is the ultimate limitation. And I think dreamer's disease basically tackles limitation as an umbrella, but fear at its heart. Mm. Nice. I like that. That's a nice one. Um, and then the final question is, what does happiness mean to you? Hmm. Happiness is having the freedom of choice while being responsible of that choice in this world, knowing that you have a responsibility of protecting others and helping others at the same time. But it's really about the freedom to choose. I think it's the ultimate sense of safety and control that you will have to just feel safe, knowing that you can choose whatever you want, but in a way that protects others and in a way that allows you to evolve and be a demonstration. Mm. If you want to be happy, be a demonstration of what others are capable of. Be authentic. You probably wanted a one-liner, but I think there's something else I wanted <laughs> no, to no, mention about great. this. Um, I think it's hard to be happy when you're not authentic. And I think it's hard to be happy when you're not living your truth, when you're not telling the truth. If you're living in suppression, you live in fear. And if you live in fear, you can't live in happiness. Mm. Then, oh God, sorry, you've, you've sent me off on one now. But So then how is it, how can you be authentic in a world which almost asks us to suppress our authenticity in order to fit into the constructs within society that have been put in place over you know, hundreds of years or decades or whatever it is? That's a very interesting question because in a way it is an impossible question and I'll tell you why in a second, um, not to go off on a tangent, but I remember one of my followers asked me a question. I don't remember exactly what the question is, but the gist of it mm -hmm. is how can I lower my arm that I have raised. And what's interesting about that is what they're basically asking is how can I control what I'm already in control of? And when you ask that question, that's an impossible question for the mind to answer. It's like the chicken and the egg. Yeah. You don't know how to answer that question because the, the, if I asked you that, if I actually asked you that, how can I control what I'm already in control of? What would you say? I would ask why you'd want to control what you're already in control of if you're already controlling it in the first place. See, <laughs> so you get into a loop. Yeah. So what you just asked me is how do you be, <clears throat> sorry, how to be authentic 
in a world that demands inauthenticity. Yeah. Well, you're choosing to be inauthentic, to follow them. So how to be authentic? Give yourself permission to choose to be whatever you want, including being authentic. Mm. Choose to be authentic because the only resistance you will get from being authentic is the backlash comes from the fact that you're exposing the inauthenticity in others. When you're being authentic, you're revealing the inauthenticity and insecurity of other people, of why they're not being authentic. So now they want to attack you. But if you choose to be authentic and maintain the authenticity long enough, there's a breaking point. And they will surrender and accept your authenticity and you will become a demonstration for what they are capable of. Yeah. Without them getting in the way of you evolving in the way that you chose to in the first place. Yeah. That that makes sense. I think that's really powerful. I think that's actually a really powerful uh, note to end on. So that's worked out quite well. Um, So obviously I appreciate your time because this is the second time we've sat down to do this. Um, hopefully there'll be many more to come because I feel like we could literally record a three hour episode and not even realize three hours has passed. I would be honored. Um, but to sign out officially, can you let people know where they can find you online and your amazing work and how they can keep up to date with everything you do? Sure. Um, on Instagram, my Instagram handle is Sam Karashi. That's S A M for Michael Q U R A S H I. And on Patreon, for if people want to go and dive deeper into the content, it's uh, Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Sam Karashi. Mm. And I would most definitely recommend te- checking out the content you put out on Instagram and then going to check out yes. the Patreon stuff because we were talking about this earlier and the stuff that you're offering on Patreon is a lot more in depth and probably very beneficial if you're interested in the stuff that's on your instagram account um so yeah look again a million thank yous for this it's been a pleasure um it's a shame that we have to cut after an hour because i really could go on for a lot longer um i would love to yeah but we will i'm sure we'll do it again sometime soon definitely it's an absolute pleasure to be here thank you for having me i had a blast thank you thank you So there we have it, guys. That was Sam's story. And I, lo- I love that conversation. Honestly, like I could sit and chat to Sam for five hours and record, not record, whatever. Uh, we even had like a half hour, 45 minute conversation before we started recording. There was so much stuff in there. He's just one of those guys who, when he talks, you really listen because every word he says has meaning to it. And I find that super interesting. So I hope that you really enjoyed this episode. And as I said at the very beginning, if you did take a screenshot of yourself listening to it, post it to your Instagram story, tag me at I am Alex Manzi so I can connect with you there. And also, if there's someone who you think can also learn from this episode, please make sure you share the love with them. Send them the link, send them the screenshot, whatever it is, send them that message, send them the vibe so they can learn like we both have from this episode. But until next time, make sure you go out there and chase your dreams. This podcast is produced by Unedited.